Welcome to The Nonprofit Voice, a podcast series brought to you by Nonprofit Pro, the go-to resource for nonprofit management and strategy. In each episode, we're going to sit down with leaders of nonprofit organizations, the people responsible for paving the way for our sector, along with key technology strategy partners who are transforming our industry. Here at the Nonprofit Voice, we'll have refreshing conversations in which we will all learn more about the convergence of nonprofit and technology. Be sure to follow us on social media and visit our website to find more episodes of the Nonprofit Voice. And you can download all of the Nonprofit Voice episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We will have all the links down below. Hi, welcome back to the Nonprofit Voice. I'm Amanda Cole, the Editor-in-Chief of Nonprofit Pro and host of today's episode which is supported by Philadelphia insurance companies. Learn more at phly.com about their 30 years of providing customized insurance solutions that meet the unique needs of nonprofits and social service organizations. Thank you for joining me on today's podcast. We will be discussing risk management when it comes to serving vulnerable populations and how to develop a crisis management plan. Joining us today is Gregory Love, a sexual abuse prevention expert, co-founder of Ministry Safe and partner at Love and Norris Law Firm and Andrew Shockey, Assistant Vice President of Risk Management Services for Philadelphia Insurance Companies. Before we get into today's topic, can you share a little bit more about yourself, Gregory? Yeah, I guess by trade, you would call me a sexual abuse lawyer. Uh, I've been practicing law for 31 years and almost 28 of those years dedicated to sexual abuse and sexual misconduct issues, especially around camps, schools, nonprofits, youth sport organizations, churches, ministries. So for the better part of the last 30 years, what it means to be a sexual abuse lawyer from my standpoint is I deal with litigation, also the design and implementation of safety systems, and also crisis management. And I do that with my wife, who's my law partner, Kimberly Norris. Okay, great. And Andrew, how about you? Thank you, Amanda. I'm based out of our corporate office in Pennsylvania. My responsibilities include developing relationships with our key national client, and agency partners for the purposes of inspiring risk improvement efforts. I've been in the risk management field of the commercial insurance industry for the past 19 years. We'll elaborate on what a crisis management plan needs to include, but first, can you provide a brief overview of what issues nonprofits that work with vulnerable populations have faced over the past few years? Gregory, what have been the issues health and human service nonprofits have faced? Well, the the culture has been one of the biggest things that we're seeing in change. Um, When the culture changes, that drives different legislation. It drives licensure. But what we're also seeing that affects everyone, not just on a state-by-state basis or a type of program, is the fact that our culture is angrier than it's ever been before. So over the last five years, really kicked off from the misconduct in gymnastics, we've really seen a cultural attitude shift. So there's There's an increasingly growing frustration regarding vulnerable populations being mistreated in programming, driven primarily by child sexual abuse allegations, but not exclusively. So as you may recall from even the time during the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, it was sexual misconduct matters involving Hollywood, the NFL, politics, news media. We saw allegations regarding, you know, Cosby, Spacey, Depp, Al Franken. I mean, it was rocking all sectors of our society And we got this at me too, which is almost like a label on a cultural change. It's almost like our communities will not tolerate any more misconduct or mistreatment of those people our culture deems vulnerable. And so there's an understanding about 
types of injuries, whether it's physical injuries from falls, injuries in youth sport, car accidents, things like that. But now there's very little tolerance for misconduct or mistreatment, especially of a sexual nature. And when the culture is angry, it's a quick trip to litigation, media coverage, social media backlash. And so the intensity is so high that for many organizations, it can be mission ending. So that same anger and frustration turns into unpredictable financial demands, verdicts, settlements, that in turn drives premiums. And so some of the things that organizations had been just viewed coverage as a given, now that's changing as well. So Amanda, in short, this cultural hostility toward forms of misconduct and mistreatment of vulnerable populations, especially sexual misconduct, is having a significant impact on organizations that serve those populations. And in your experience, Gregory, are nonprofits prepared for the risk of child sexual abuse? Sadly, most organizations aren't prepared. Now, to some, their lack of preparation is revealed in a crisis. Others, more proactive organizations, are seeking counsel before a crisis unfolds. But, but either way, in many programs that serve vulnerable populations, not just children, it's believed that as, as long as I'm meeting my licensure requirements, I'm doing what's necessary. And unfortunately, that's just simply not true. Because in the legal world, when we talk about standards of care, licensure talk is minimum standards. And minimum standards are just that. They're minimum. Okay, so what organizations need to do is understand, are they prepared for risks as the risk unfolds, not how, how licensure describes it. Now, with respect to programs that serve children, this is compounded by a fundamental misunderstanding of what is the risk. See, child sexual abuse allegations continue to make headlines, and they've been making headlines for the last 30 years of my law practice, but why does this continue to be a problem? And here's the fundamental thing I would want my, my nonprofits that serve vulnerable populations in the form of children to understand. There are two types of offenders. There's the abduction offender, and there's the preferential offender. Most organizations build their risk management efforts around the abduction offender, the offender that's most common to people. But unfortunately, the abduction offender only represents 10% of the risk. Most of the risk, 90% of the risk comes from the preferential offender. See, Larry Nasser, Jerry Sandusky, preferential offenders. They didn't abduct anyone. See, in the child sexual abuse cases, children and youth are not being abducted, yet that's the basis of the safety efforts. So in short, most child-serving programs are building the wrong fence. Their protective measures are aimed at 10% of the risk. Now, it's a, that's an important risk. We don't want our children abducted from programming, but most of my child-serving organizations are wide open as it relates to the 90% of the risk, and that's usually only revealed in the form of a crisis. Now, that's it's also what we're seeing in the nonprofit sector, especially as it relates to children and not just children. There's a very heavy reliance on a criminal background check as the solution to the problem. Now, back to the child sexual abuse risk. Unfortunately, less than 10% of sexual abusers will ever encounter the criminal justice system. Now, what that means is even if CSI Miami runs your background checks for you, more than 90% of the people that wish to hurt our children have nothing for you to find, comma, and they know it. So we must do the criminal background checks, 
We just need to understand what the criminal background check does and doesn't give us, and it can't be the only thing we do. So again, Amanda, sadly, those realities are revealed in a crisis, and when people contact my office and start to tell me the story, I can finish your story for you because it's an all-too-common story, but nonetheless, that's what my nonprofits that serve vulnerable populations need to understand is what is the risk to my populations given my type of programming, and am I prepared for that risk? Okay, and with most programs now reopen, what do nonprofits need to do to ensure they have an effective safety system in place, and how should they evaluate that system? Kind of coming right off the, the last question and answer is, I meet with organizations you know, every day, and it's different organizations, whether they're residential treatment centers, you know, camps, whether they're a multi-campus uh, nonprofit involving special needs programming or daycare centers. But when I meet with organizational leadership to discuss preparedness or whether they have the effective safety systems in place, the first step is always understanding what is the risk faced in that particular entity. In other words, don't just look at your licensure. Licensure oftentimes is a very broad brush. We need to get granular. So maybe the organization serves a number of populations. And if that's the case, we do this in steps. So like a daycare center, that's pretty rifle shot. You can get very clean into what populations, the type of physical plant used to serve those populations and staffing. But for some nonprofits, they're serving a waterfront of types of populations and types of programming. But regardless, we start per program, per population, and we identify what is the risk, clearly define it, okay? What are the foreseeable things that could go wrong in that particular program? And then what are the pop, what ways can your populations be injured, especially as it relates to sexual misconduct? Then you evaluate the different foreseeable risk and how they unfold in your population from your staff, different people that have access to your populations that are non-staff, like volunteers, your physical plant, your programming. So you take that risk and then you evaluate how that risk unfolds because you see how sexual misconduct unfolds in a special needs summer camp is different than how it would unfold in a residential treatment center. So there's not a broad brush. You get granular into that particular type of program, what type of services it provides. So it's, it, it's not unlike a fire drill or a tornado drill like what we had in middle school. Man, if you'll remember that, we had all the teachers told us, okay, on today, they're going to ring the bell three times, and then we're going to pretend like there's a tornado outside, and then all the third grade lines up, and they all go into, say, for example, the men's locker room. Well, if in doing that drill, they realize only half the kids fit in the locker room, they don't just like, well, darn, we're going to lose half the kids. You try to understand, am I prepared for that foreseeable risk by practicing that risk? So it's the same concept that we bring into risk management as it relates to sexual misconduct. It's let's drill this. It's a foreseeable risk. Let's see in a practice tornado or a practice fire, do we have the right systems in place and are they effective given the populations we serve? So essentially we would drill it. Gregory, you advise nonprofits to evaluate their preparedness for sexual misconduct through a fire drill. What does this entail? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, there's many types of risks. Now, I'm usually involved in the sexual misconduct analysis. So 
whether it's sexual abuse, whether it's sexual misconduct in that waterfront of types of populations that are served. But see, sexual misconduct is a foreseeable risk. So we drill it, just like the tornado drill or the fire drill. Now, we call it a sexual abuse fire drill when it's children. We also would call it a sexual misconduct fire drill if it's a nonprofit that served populations, including you know, vulnerable adults. And that, of course, that term vulnerable adults is a very broad term as well. But nonetheless, we know that sexual misconduct is a foreseeable risk in those types of programs. So with that, in a simplified way, it works like this. When we're contacted by leadership, I'll gather you know, the organizational stakeholders, you know, who are the program directors, who are the, the people that are the decision makers in that organization. But what I really in, in expect them to do is bring in your insurance agent into this fire drill. So if you can imagine a boardroom or a conference room, so here's the leadership team at that organization, here's their insurance agent, maybe a representative from their insurance carrier, and then we're going to drill it. So we pretend that we have a sexual misconduct allegation. So let's take a children's program, for example. I would tell this group, let's assume that we have a trusted staff member accused or arrested of molesting, say, 14 girls. All right. So with that being said, let's pretend that just came in to our leadership meeting. What are your safety processes? Let's go back and evaluate with a real life crisis, pretend, and see whether the safety system processes we have in place are effective as it relates to that particular allegation. What are your reporting processes? What is your plan for dealing with the victims or the victim's families? In other words, can you immediately put together a model of care? You know, what is your media plan? What is your process for when law enforcement comes and asks you for an employment file? Okay, so giving this allegation imagination of a trusted staff member and multiple victims, we get to walk through their process to understand what is your level of preparedness. Now, this also is very important to do this with respect to their insurance coverage, because I can't tell you, Amanda, how many times when I contact an organization that's in a real crisis, I can go through and ask them these questions and ask them, do you have insurance coverage? Because oftentimes that insurance policy will have a portion of funds that are available for immediate counseling for the child victims. Now, when I ask that question, I'll ask, how much coverage do you have? And people will rattle off some numbers or some figures to me. But when I ask them, send me the insurance policy. I want to confirm that you're reading it correctly. I can't tell you how many times I've found, Amanda, that they didn't have the coverage they thought they had, or they had a million dollars in two million aggregate but if you flipped over two more pages, they had a separate section of a misconduct endorsement that limited all sexual misconduct to $100,000 or specifically excluded sexual misconduct coverage. And see, for those organizations that learned that in the course of their crisis, it's too late to make changes at that point. And in that circumstance that I'm remembering, it put that organization out of business because it cost them their building, their vehicles, and a number of the other assets to be able to satisfy those claims. So if we can do that in the form of a drill so that we can pretend we have a trusted staff member and multiple victims, now we can determine what policies do you have in place? What coverages? What limits? Do you have an E&O policy? Do you have a DNO policy? Do you have an umbrella policy? Do they exclude sexual misconduct? They exclude this kind of sexual misconduct. 
If we can do that in the course of a drill, that gives the leadership the opportunity to understand, do they have the right products in place? Do they have the right insurance agent? If you have an insurance agent that simply plays golf with somebody on the board of directors, but really doesn't understand sexual misconduct risk management, chances are you need to change who you play golf with or find someone who understands this because as I mentioned earlier, given the cultural changes, this is the deep end of the pool now, and there is no room for making mistakes. So in the course of this drill, we evaluate the preparedness for particular sexual misconduct risks, but we also get the opportunity to evaluate, do I have the right insurance relationships in place, whether it's for an agent or a carrier? Because through that drill, we get to decide do we have half our kids hanging out of the locker room? Because if that's the case, now we get the chance without there being a real life crisis to make the changes necessary to avoid the real life crisis. So one of the things I always, through that process, it's going to become clear to me whether you're in the right relationship with a carrier or a broker that understands sexual misconduct risk. And this is where I'll oftentimes make the uncomfortable suggestion that the organization simply needs to make a change because there are carriers and brokers. You need good risk management partners because most of my nonprofit leadership, they're good at what they do, but they're not necessarily good at navigating this ever-changing marketplace with respect to insurance products. So there are about 10 or 11 insurance carriers that make serving child serving organizations and, and vulnerable population nonprofits, their silos of business, I would always encourage my folks, lean toward one of those people because they are going to have a staff of loss control. They're going to have a staff of folks that can help you navigate the changes in the culture, how that translates into the changes in business, help you understand the changes in your licensure, and help you understand whether you are prepared for this risk without having to call a lawyer, and then also make sure that you have the good products in place so that you have a risk management strategy, both in your preparedness for sexual abuse and sexual misconduct risk, and for the financial piece in the event something does slip through the cracks, or from a historical allegation, because what we're seeing also, Amanda, is claims arising from bad behavior that took place 15, 20, and 25 years ago. So navigating these rocks in the water is becoming more and more difficult. Making sure that you have good risk management partners is becoming increasingly important. So with that said, Andrew, in what ways can insurance companies support a nonprofit with information and tools regarding sexual abuse risk? Absolutely. Thank you, Amanda. As part of the fire drill, uh, a critical element uh, to incorporate it, uh, is your agent and your liability insurance carrier. A simple way to engage these vested business partners of yours is uh, th through just a simple discussion. And I'll suggest the following questions uh, just to start that discussion. Uh, the first would be, are there specific claims professionals uh, with your carrier that have experience in handling these very uh, specific type of claims? Okay. Uh, another question will be, how will your carrier agents support a, a victim-centric response upon receipt of a claim? Okay. A third one would be, uh, would the carrier and your agent be willing to review your current policies, training, uh, content, and crisis management plans and to provide their perspective? And a final question could be, how uh, can you as an organization help facilitate the communications 
uh, with your insurance carrier and your agent uh, under this type of a claim scenario? Uh, the answers to those questions are ones we're, we're well prepared to support at Philadelphia Insurance and participate in regularly, and especially on the uh, proactive pieces of policies and procedures and training content review. Um, and it's just something that is done well in advance, um, it just serves everyone much better all the way around, most importantly, uh, in delivering that very appropriate victim-centric response. Okay, great. Um, that's all the time we have for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Hopefully you gained great insights on how to improve your crisis management plan. And thank you so much to our guests, Gregory and Andrew, for explaining these aspects of risk management for nonprofits serving vulnerable populations. On behalf of Nonprofit Pro and Philadelphia Insurance Companies, I'm Amanda Cole, and we will see you on the next episode of The Nonprofit Voice. Thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The Nonprofit Voice. You can listen to more episodes of The Nonprofit Voice at nonprofitpro.com slash podcast slash the hyphen nonprofit hyphen voice. And remember, for your convenience, you can stream any and all episodes of The Nonprofit Voice on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify.